It's again a marvelous opportunity and a privilege that we have this evening to come together. We have another very interested audience, it would appear, as we have, again are going to attempt to consider a portion of the book of Revelation. This is the 13th in this series of lessons dealing with this rather interesting and closing book to the New Testament. In fact, isn't it still a remarkable thing to ever keep in mind that with the closing of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 21, the pen of inspiration was laid down forever. Never again will we have at our disposal another written issue in which there's inspiration behind it. This one is the finality of it. This was to be, if you will, God's final message to his people for all ages and for all time. No wonder such joy is to be found within it, at least when we consider the end of the journey, when we consider the ultimate character of what is to be gained in that final and marvelous reward. In our study, we have, of course, looked at many, many issues concerning the first 12 chapters of this book. Given that there's some 22 chapters in it total, we are just a shade over halfway finished with it by a number of chapters at least. It would probably be safe to say that in the context of chapter 13, we arrive at two of the most intriguing elements to be found anywhere in the book at all. In fact, when questions are asked concerning the book of Revelation, it's almost invariably the case that one of the matters that rises and bubbles to the top almost immediately has to do with the beasts of this chapter and most carefully, what is the mark of the beast. If you're aware of some of the more recent writings, you're probably aware that there are many assertions in regard to that mark of the beast and many around our globe and our world have been so agitated thereby that they are nearly beside themselves in asking and wondering what is this beast? Am I in a position to receive it? Exactly what is it? One of the elements we will attempt then to consider tonight will be, based on verse 18, the nature of this mark of the beast. But by virtue of introduction, I would ask you to first notice where we came to at the end of our lesson last Lord's Day evening. On that occasion, we noticed that we had arrived at chapter 12, and in the course of that chapter, we had begun the next major section of the book of Revelation. Chapters 12 through 20 fit into one section, and we will have one continuous story from the opening of chapter 12 until the ending of chapter 20. And thus, as we are in the midst of it, we again will be reminded over and over of the final battle plan in which there's victory for God, for His Christ, and for those who are His saints, and there's ultimate defeat and tragedy for those who have not their names found in that Lamb's book of life. Notice also that as far as the identity of the three major elements in chapter 12, we notice that the woman represented the saints of both Old and New Testament era. That child that she bore, which by the way the dragon desired to consume and devour, that child was the Christ. And we are told exactly that the dragon himself was none other than Satan, the devil himself. With those major identifications, we again might be reminded that what we saw in that chapter was the intent and the desire of Satan to overthrow the plan of God for the redemption of the human family. He tried to devour the child, but he was unsuccessful. The child, in fact, was not only preserved, but ultimately ascended to the Father, and a kingdom was given to him. Satan failed on that account. Later in the chapter, one more time, we notice he made a second attempt in an effort to, in fact, thwart the plan of God, 
And yet again, he failed because we notice that the flood that he poured out in persecution, it is such that again, he was not successful in that effort. The very last verse of the chapter reminded us though that he still hasn't given up. He has in his plan of attack, if you will, to seek and to pursue and to overcome the remnant of the seed of the woman. And we're told that that's those who keep the commandments of God. Satan is still after you and me. He's still after us with great fervor and energy and zeal. We must kill, keep the commandments of God in their faithfulness in order to overcome him. We might notice, though, that in all those attempts, Satan failed every time in terms of the specifics. As we open chapter 13, we see a renewed beast, if you will, a renewed devil who has another attempt in his efforts to, in fact, lead people astray from the plan of God. I wonder if he was successful. Let us see. In Revelation 13, let us read verses 1 through 10. And as we do that, we'll be prepared to return and discuss the specifics of that section and seek to identify the interesting description that's herein provided. Verse number 1 and following of Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Beginning in the next verse will be the description of yet another beast. But this somewhat draws to a conclusion or opening description of this rather intriguing beast now set before us. On the screen to my left, I've placed a few of the concepts and descriptions that we've just read about. I would ask that you would note some of them with me. The first one to observe is, in fact, a bit of a correction, if I might. We notice that verse number 1 begins by saying, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. The actual Greek text would inform us that the pronoun there is not a correct assertion. In fact, it's the dragon, as I've attempted to illustrate. It is the dragon that's the one standing on the sea. The same dragon that we saw in chapter 12, John now sees standing on the seashore. And isn't it interesting that immediately following that in verse 1, John does now notice that I saw a beast rise out of the sea. 
This beast that he sees, we quickly observe, was a rather fierce and ferocious-looking creature. For after all, it had some seven heads, ten horns, and also a large number of crowns. All the while, we immediately appreciate that this beast is powerful in the sense that the power received had originally belonged to the dragon. We'll note that more carefully in just a moment. But notice furthermore, as this beast rises from the sea, verse 1 tells us that that which is written on its heads is blasphemy, the name of blasphemy. We will do well to revisit that in just a moment and ask more carefully what is the significance and the thrust of that word blasphemy. But for now, verse number 2 informs us that the shape, the appearance, the character of this beast was such that it was a combination of various kinds of animals as John described them. It seemed to most carefully mimic or have a pattern like that of a leopard. But notice interesting in, in verse number 2, its feet were like that of a bear and its mouth was like that of a lion. All the while, this description is such that verse 2 closes by carefully noting that the dragon gave to this beast his power, his seat, and great authority. A gigantic lesson then for us to notice is in that whatever this first beast represents, it received its power, its authority, and its character ultimately by virtue of the dragon. And since the dragon was, of course, the devil, this force, whatever this beast represents, will be a tremendous force following the character of Satan. It will oppose God to its very core. But notice in verses 3 and following, we also learn that one of the heads of this beast was wounded, but it was healed. Even though the wound was a fatal one, or deadly it would appear, as we'll see a bit later in the chapter, it was healed, and the power and the capability of this first beast was again to be understood and appreciated. It is for this reason that we might notice in verses 4, 5, and 6, the world wondered after this beast. It was something that captivated the attention of the world. It was a particular entity or being that not only captivated it, but verse 4, they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast as well. Whatever this beast represented, whatever the fullness and reality of it was, not only was the dragon worshipped, but this beast as well. Let us continue on, though. What else might we appreciate? The mouth mentioned in verses 5 and 6. Great blasphemies were presented and spoken by virtue of this beast. And we notice in verse number 5, it continued for 40 and 2 months. Again, that's a time period and a time frame that we've seen so often. 1,260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and a half a time, 42 months, they're all speaking of the same time frame. And hence, since we've already identified that, that'll be very helpful for us to identify who or what this first beast actually is. In addition, we notice in verse 6, this first beast blasphemed God. He spoke evil of God, God's people, God's tabernacle. All that God defended and approved were spoken evil of and blasphemed by this first beast. Notice also that we can easily say from verses 7 and 8 that this first beast made war with the saints. Those who were God's people were opposed by this beast and the beast so ferociously opposed them 
that John described it as a war. Now, we immediately know that in warfare, the victor, those who are, of course, on the offensive, are such that they put to death or slay those who are their enemies in almost all instances. This first beast, the sea beast, if we might describe it that way, is such that the war it made with the saints put many of them to death. He opposed them so ferociously and fiercely that that was the finality and the end of it. Verse 7 reminds us, this sea beast had power over all kindreds, all nations, and all tongues. Whatever force is represented thereby was extremely extensive in that many peoples from a variety of nations succumbed to the influence and power of it. Finally, we notice in verse 8, carefully stated for us that all who dwell upon the earth shall worship him, this first beast, except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. As we list all of these clues, we're beginning to, I believe, appreciate, we can put those together. Our first goal in just a moment will be to attempt to identify what or who is this sea beast. What does it represent? But perhaps one final observation one of the shortest verses in all the book of Revelation is verse 9 of this chapter. If any man have an ear, let him hear. How often does the Savior remind us, as he did to those seven churches of Asia, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is a vital lesson, not only for those of the day to whom John wrote, but for you and me as well now some 20 centuries later. Finally, in verse number 10, we see the dramatic impact that those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And those who into captivity, in fact, desire to take others shall themselves be taken into captivity. And finally, one dramatic and declarative statement, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. At that point, the next description then takes up yet another beast, but for now... Might you and I ask, who or what is this sea beast? This beast that John saw arise out of the sea with the devil standing on the seashore? Perhaps an artist's rendition will get us started. Here's one artist's drawing of what this beast may well have looked like to John. Again, due to the lighting, you may not be able to see all of the details, but there are a large number of horns. There are little crowns on those horns, just in case you can't see them from where you might be. We can notice that the feet are like those of a bear. There is a rather tumultuous sea out of which this beast is rising. We notice also that the mouth area on these various minor heads are those of a lion. And of course we see that the body more resembles that of a leopard. All leading us back to the nature and character of these specific descriptions and details that we've seen so far. Now, who or what does this beast represent? Well, might I ask you to put together by way of somewhat like a puzzle some of these descriptions that we've just given, noting, noting also the history we've, that we've appreciated so far and seeing if we can identify who or what this beast is. First of all, since the dragon, standing there on the seashore, giving the power again to this first beast, we immediately learn that there's a close association between the dragon on the one hand and this sea beast on the other. 
This beast will in fact be one who is a part of the arsenal of the devil. He will do the devil's bidding. He will carry out the devil's work. It will be a force and entity that in fact pursues those ungodly matters associated with the devil himself. Back to verse 1. We learn that the name on those heads was blasphemy. Blasphemy is spoken of on several occasions in the Old Testament especially. And there we learn that it was a matter of speaking against divine things. Quite often God himself. To revile the very nature and character of God or his name or whatever he approves and whatever he divinely sanctions. Yet that's the very thing written on the heads of this beast. Do we not learn immediately then that this beast will represent a force that stands in direct opposition to God? The force, in fact, will oppose God's bidding, His will, His truth, His ways. This sea beast is going to represent a rather strong force that stands in direct opposition to the grandness and truth of the God of heaven. If you'd like to compare Revelation 13, verse number 2, or rather verse number 1 with Revelation 12, verse 3, you have yet another opportunity to see with me the nature of how closely associated the dragon was on the one hand and this sea beast on the other. Notice that they had an equal number of heads, they had an equal number of horns. Now we do notice that there was a difference in the number of crowns, but the other associations directly imply that there was a tremendous degree of association between the devil on the one hand and this beast on the other. Let us look, though, at some other clues. Perhaps one of the most interesting said is to be found in verse 2. We noted earlier that there were three animals mentioned carefully. There was the bear. The feet of this beast were like those of a bear. There was the mouth in which a lion's mouth was noted to be so closely related to the mouth of this beast, and the body resembled that of a leopard. It is no coincidence that in the Old Testament we encounter another scene where not only those three animals but one more arises at the same time. It's found in a vision seen by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. In those days of long ago, Daniel in fact saw with a sweeping character the nature of four beasts that arose one after the other. What were those representative features of those beasts? One was like a leopard, one was like a bear, one was like a lion. One was merely described as being terrible and tremendously fierce. As we look back to the nature of this beast seen here, notice the same three animals are appearing. And what's more, the resemblances are far more than what time would allow us to fully see in all of its detail this evening. May we say, if we look back to Daniel we will find a great deal of understanding that will aid us to pinpoint exactly what this beast represents. For if we return to those issues in Daniel, what was the first beast? That first one that arose out of the sea in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, it represented Babylon. The second one that arose represented the Medo-Persians. The third one that arose represented Greece. What about that fourth one? That was the one that was terrible and ferocious. It was the one that wasn't likened especially to any animal in particular. Rome. As we look then to this New Testament description in Revelation 13, we find that as these particular ones are made mention of, that fourth beast that Daniel saw in Daniel 7 verse 7 
had in many respects the characteristics here because especially noted was the horn of that fourth beast. The likeness here is virtually the same in almost every particular. Can we not then see that this beast that's arising here is the same as the fourth beast of Daniel's visions, Rome? We're inching closer and closer to nailing this clearly. Let us look at a few more, and I think our work will be done. Notice what else can be said. In Revelation 17, verse 9, there is a clear description. Another reference, if you will, to this sea beast. And there, this sea beast is described as one who rests on seven mountains. With that piece of information in place, again, our job is virtually complete. Of all the cities in the world, which one is known as a seven-hilled city? Which one was founded on seven hills? And until the time of John's writing, it was exactly still known in that same way. Every person to whom John wrote would have known immediately that once you made reference to a seven-mountain or seven-hill city, you would be talking about Rome. When it was established in the middle part of the 8th century B.C., those who initially established it chose seven hills there on the eastern side or the western side of the place we call Italy. And upon that location, they founded the city of Rome, the seven-hill city. This first beast then, it would seem very clearly by every piece of information we've seen so far, represents the Roman Empire. But perhaps one other will even further solidify that conclusion. We notice in verse 5 that the power of this first beast was to last for 42 months. We learned earlier that the 1,260 days, the three and a half years, were all representative of that time period until the Eastern Roman Empire fell. When we studied the trumpet judgments back in chapter 8, we learned there that that time period, 42 months, exactly described the time when Rome would dominate the church and when, in fact, Rome would have superior power over the nations of the world. The Roman Empire is the sea beast. Furthermore, can we not see, in listing these, there are several other features that seem to fall so naturally into place. One of them we might notice is verse 4. They worship the dragon as well as the beast. In her day, when she was the mighty and strong influencing power on earth, all everywhere longed to travel to Rome, the imperial city. She was the central hub of the known world at the time. And as they would come to bask in her glory, archaeologists have uncovered, and even to this day, if you take a trip to Rome, you can see the various public baths and other very extravagant things that were available to the populace of the city. It was a place that, in a real way, was worshipped by people everywhere for its greatness, for all that it offered in the way of material goodness and riches and wealth. But what's more? Who is like unto the beast, verse 4, who is able to make war with him? In its day, Rome was undefeatable. Though her low armies raised themselves and came against her, there was no match, for her armies were the strongest, and not for a couple of centuries finally were various peoples able to at least overrun a portion of the mighty empire. As we look at the next set of verses, verse 6, those Roman rulers came to oppose God and all that God stood for. In fact, they persecuted Christianity, those men like Trajan and Nero and Domitian, they made life miserable in many ways for Christianity. God was not allowed in anywhere, in any place. 
Christians were laughed at, mocked at, killed and made fun of. Notice verse 6 had informed us that God's name, His people, His tabernacle, and all that He stood for would be opposed. We do notice in verse 7 that all kindreds, nations, and tongues notice the vastness of the Roman Empire, the towering strength that again for a while that that empire enjoyed and had. At this point, perhaps we've said enough to conclude that this first beast, this sea beast, none other than that character of the Roman Empire, in its strength, in its day, in its time, as it opposed God and all that God stood for. But before passing on to that second beast mentioned, notice with me again verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. We have another reference to that precious book of life in which the names of the faithful are therein presented and we will revisit that book in Revelation chapter 20. And on that occasion we will learn that those that enter heaven have their names in that book. We learn immediately then that those who bowed the knee to Caesar and those who strove to do that which he found pleasing and who pursued the things of materialism and imperial Rome, worshiping the beast, the dragon, and all that they stood for, their names are not written in the book of life. That perhaps in its great tragedy reminds us of the imperative need today to ensure that we too do not bow the knee to culture and society, if any man have an ear, let him hear, verse number 9. With those things stated, can we not appreciate the grandness and the fullness to be seen in verse number 10, where the patience and the faith of the saints is emphasized. Those first century saints needed faith and patience to withstand this beast who was the very servant of the devil, for in order to be faithful they had to stand strong. Notice then that Satan has enlisted the service of a beast to aid him to thwart God's plan. We know from verse number 10 that he wasn't entirely successful. Oh, he may have put many saints to death, that he may have overcome the faith of many. But when there was faith and patience in the saints, they withstood, they persevered, they remained faithful. We notice that that's not all the help that Satan enlisted. Amazingly enough, he will even enlist another beast. That one wasn't enough. As we begin reading in verse number 11, we will encounter a second beast. We also will have as our goal the identity of this one. As we begin, let us read verses 11 through 18 in description of the second beast and then attempt to identify what or who this one is as well. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. 
And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, say that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. And thus in the finality of chapter number 13, we notice that as we come next week, chapter 14 will begin a new description. Here then, in our very presence, is a discussion of yet a second beast. I've listed a few of the features of this one as well. Would you notice just a few of them with me? Notice that this land beast, this other beast, came up out of the earth. Whereas the first one had arisen from the sea, this one arose from the land or from the earth. For that reason, I tend to refer to the first one as the sea beast and to this one as the land beast. But all the while, would you, all, would you also notice with me that this land beast had two horns according to verses 11 and 12. But interestingly enough, the horns were like those of a lamb. Now, a beast and a lamb are very different. But the horns on this land beast were like those of a lamb. But notice also that he spake as a dragon, verse number 11. Isn't it amazing that in verse 12, this land beast exercised power given to it by the first beast? Again, we notice a close association between the first beast, the sea beast, and the second beast, the land beast. In fact, that association is so strong that this second beast caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast. So the objective, the entirety of the goal of this land beast was to lead and encourage men to worship the sea beast. That'll be very significant as we'll note in a moment. Furthermore, in verses 12 and 13, we notice another reference to the fact the deadly wound that we noted in verse 3 earlier in regard to that first beast had been healed, and again he was a great influential factor and in being. Verse 13, great wonders were done by this second beast. Amazingly enough, even reference to fire coming down from heaven in the sight of men. Verse 14, this beast, this land beast, deceived them that dwell on the earth. One more time we encounter deception. The devil's called the great deceiver in Revelation 12 verse 9. The first beast was involved in that in, a, in an essence too. Here this land beast is especially said to deceive those on earth by means of miracles which he had the power to do. Furthermore, he encouraged men to make an image to the first beast. We have reference to idolatry here. To construct an image and force men to worship it. That's what's described for us in verse 14. Finally, in verse 15, power was given unto this one to encourage not only the worship of that first beast, but to put to death those who refused to do it. Those who refused to worship that sea beast, the second beast, had power to put to death. Again, as we put all these clues together, we will find an intriguing response and answer to it. But furthermore, verse 16, we notice that he caused all, both free and bond, small and great, verse 16, to receive a mark in their forehead. 
And for those who didn't, they were not able to buy and sell. They were not able, in fact, to engage in the matters of normal livelihood with respect to food and the necessary sustenance of life. Finally, in verse 18, we have mention made about the nature of a number, that mark of the beast, the number of a man, some six hundred, three score, and six. All the while, as we've looked at a number of those features and descriptions, our question is the same as before. Can we identify who or what this land beast represents? It would again seem that we can certainly do it by virtue of all the clues. Let us try our hand at it. First, another artist's rendition. This is another artist's picture about the nature of these beasts that we are now seeing. I would ask you to notice that here on the left is the dragon. That's the one that we had actually seen before. Here on the sea is this sea beast that we've already described earlier this evening. But notice that there is a land beast also on the land. And that land beast is this final one that we're representing or discussing already tonight. You can notice that he opposes in a great way those saints that are therein described and represented. We will seek to piece together all that information and try to identify the character of this, sea, this land beast. Here are some thoughts for your consideration. First of all, notice with me the origination of this land beast. It did not arise before the sea beast. It came after it, and furthermore, it supported all that the sea beast had done. For call, the sea beast arose first. This one on the land arose in support of the power, might, and authority already represented in the sea beast. So historically, as we seek to understand it, this cannot be any influence or force that arose historically prior to the origination of the Roman Empire. Furthermore, as we learn later in the book, this second beast will in fact cease to be, but it will not do so prior to the ending of that empire and all the character and greatness of it. Thus, it came up with Rome and it died with Rome as well. Whatever it represented, we cannot perceive it as some influence or factor that is still ever-present in the same way today. Whatever the original nature was, the firmness and strength in its entirety are not the same if it exists today as it was then. But look at the next clue. This land beast had two horns, but they were like the horns of a lamb. We understand that the lamb in terms of the scripture is representative of this essence of sweetness and purity. The essence, in fact, of the nature of the Son of God himself. For we read in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And earlier in this book, in Revelation 5, when God had in his right hand the seven-sealed book and the lion that turned into a lamb took that book out of his hand, we learned that lamb was Jesus. What we immediately see is this second beast, this land beast, with horns like that of a lamb, we learn this was a false or deceptive religious force. It's counterfeit. It's fake. It had the appearance of religion, but it was not true. Well, what else might we conclude? We notice that this beast spoke as a dragon, verse 11. Talk about counterfeit. It had the horns like that of a lamb, like that of true religion such as Christ, when all the while, speaking as the dragon, which is the devil. 
So this is again another forceful matter of the devil clothed in the cloak of righteousness and in religion. We've learned already in 2 Corinthians 11 that even Satan's angels can transform themselves into angels of light. This was a truly a deceptive force. But what's more, what else may we say? Notice the understanding that goes along with the healing of this deadly wound. Before, we didn't lay much emphasis upon that fact. But back in verse number 3, it says, And I saw one of his heads, this was on the head of the first beast, as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Typically, you and I are under the impression that when the head of an animal is wounded to death, the animal will die. That seems to be a natural observation. But on this occasion, though a fatal wound was struck to the head of this, one of the heads of this beast, and even though it was done by way of a sword, according to verse 14, nonetheless, the beast lived. It didn't cease to be. Now, what would that mean? Given that we've learned already the Roman Empire was that sea beast. In 476 A.D., a tremendous blow was struck against it. One of its kings, in fact, was put to death. However, did the kingdom end? It didn't. We've already learned the kingdom was split, if you will. The Eastern Roman Empire continued to hold sway for almost another thousand years. Point is... You would have thought a deadly wound had been struck against Rome, but the beast still lived. It continued on and exerted influence and power. There's the thrust and meaning then of verse 3 as well as the reference at verse number 14. But what's more? Another fact that's interesting comes from the increased influence that the empire had in some ways after the deadly blow. For that's about the time that the Catholic Church in all of its force came to its finality and power. The first pope was appointed near the end of the 6th century A.D., about shortly thereafter, shortly after the time when Rome crumbled. And isn't it amazing that the actual influence of Rome was larger afterward than it was before? Now, it wasn't political, but it was religious. There we have then the revival of that beast. The character that the deadly blow didn't crush and end it. It took a different form, and the empire had more influence afterward than it had before. But not only that, isn't it amazing that this land beast claimed to do great wonders? These observations are such that they entice us further and further to notice that what could this land beast be? Well, we now have enough to where we can identify it. The final remarks on that page lead us to the next. For you see, it would appear very intricately to be this. Since this land beast encouraged the worship of the sea beast, this had to be some influence or force that encouraged the worship of the Roman emperors, the worship of the Roman Empire. And there was a very strong element in Roman society for that. It was the cult of emperor worship. In fact, they made images just like we read here of the various Roman Caesars, and they placed them in the marketplaces. And individuals, in order to enter those marketplaces, would have to bow and offer worship to that image of the Roman Caesar. The Roman Parliament declared that the Caesar was to be worshipped, just like a god. And hence, that lays emphasis upon this issue of buying and selling. When the marketplace was open for business, if you didn't bow to that 
image, that idol of the Caesar, you were not allowed entrance into the marketplace. You weren't allowed to buy food for your family. You weren't allowed, in fact, to engage in transactions and business on that location. What does all that lead us to say? Another set of facts might be represented. These things lead us to the mark of the beast. For we've already identified now the two beasts already. That sea beast, we learned, was the Roman Empire, who exerted her force and influence against the character of God. That second beast, the land beast, was the cult of emperor worship, who in fact attempted to make all worship, Rome and her Caesars and the deities to be found therein. But that does race us to bring to the very last set of verses this mention of the mark of the beast. As I started the lesson tonight, I made note that that reference to the mark of the beast is probably the single most intriguing element anywhere in the book. What is the mark of the beast? 666. There are those who won't ride on a plane if its numbers have in it the consecutive number 666. There are those who refuse to stay in a hotel room if 666 is a part of the number of the room. There are those who refuse to have a telephone number with 666 as a part of the numbers. Our world is crazy, haywire over the character of 666. Can we identify the mark of the beast? In light of knowing now who the first and second beasts are, does this make an added degree of sense for us? As we look again at verses 16 to 18, I'd ask that you read them again with me. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast." For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. I've listed some thoughts as we conclude our lesson tonight for your discussion and thinking in relation to this mark of the beast. First, can we not conclude from verses 17 and 18 by virtue of the Holy Spirit's statement itself that the mark of this beast corresponds to the name of the sea beast, for that's what it says in verse number 17, and furthermore, it corresponds to the name or the number of his name. Now that re receives an added significance when we notice that without that mark, one was unable to buy or sell, one was unable to undergo transactions or to engage in business in that day and time, and a direct consequence would have been deprivation, economic hardship, perhaps starvation to your family when you can't purchase anything for them. But isn't it also interesting that there is specific reference to the number of his name? This number, 666, what does it represent? We already noticed it's the number corresponding to the name of this beast, the sea beast, uh, the land beast rather. But what's more, as we set the situation for the considerations, we are in a position of tying it all together. If indeed this is the number of the beast, and the beast represents the Roman Empire, that apparently this is some number according to or in relation to the nature of Rome itself. At least in the initial point, could we state this? We're aware that Roman numerals, we ask our students to learn them usually in school, there's a case where a letter has a numerical value. 
For instance, the letter C represents 100 in Roman numerals. D represents 500. M represents 1,000 and so forth. And as an example, you can see that in this particular sheet, I ask you to notice that one of the references that might be noted has to do there with the mark of the beast, given that it relates to Rome, the Roman man, in which might we notice that L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S is the very name used to describe the origination of the Latin culture, the Roman Empire, if you will. When you assign the various numbers to the